Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 162 of Maximize Your Influence. I'm Steve Olson. I have Kurt Mortensen here with me. We've got a great episode planned for you today, as we do occasionally plan the show. You're stuck with two weeks of Kurt and I in a row without Woo-hoo. any guests. But hey, that's why you show up. It's to hear us talk about whatever, and we're here to do that today. Kurt, how was your weekend? It was a great weekend. Fall times, I did my little therapy today. I always jogged up the canyon, the leaves are turning, brisk air snow in the mountains it felt good i'm talking about what at least 87 percent today so i'm on it ready to roll let's teach people how to influence that sounds awesome that sounds great as we head into the home stretch of the u.s presidential election gets more ridiculous every day and we're sitting back and watching we'll probably do a show just on that uh, in the next couple of weeks so it'll be interesting to see what more surprises come out is it's just apparently a scorched earth policy that both candidates are employing here we'll watch yeah, for i'd that. say it's interesting yeah just how they're planning these what they call those october surprises and they knew about all this stuff way back and how they plan them and how we're supposed to be shocked and how they just found it and how people and it's like whoa 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 <laughs> both sides are releasing things that are really interesting so yeah the next couple of weeks keep your eyes open because yeah it'll get interesting Well, that's basic human psychology. I think people in the public eye, ourselves included, if we ever wrong somebody, the further in the past that the mistake is, generally, the more forgiving people are of it. Is that right? Usually. And it depends on the surprise factor. You notice if they're in office, they're going to leak a little bit at a time about big scandal things, happening things going on. So when it eventually comes out, there's not that big sting. But before the elections... They're hoping that there's this huge sting, this huge shock, and that's where the effect takes place. So it depends on, I think, the sting factor and how old it is and how believable it is. That's a big part of it, too. What makes my blood boil about all this stuff, both sides do it, is, I guess, what's new with politics. But it's so self-serving, right? If they were releasing information like this, it's WikiLeaks uh, for Clinton, it's sexual abuse stuff for Trump. If they were really concerned about the principle of the matter, they would have let it out as soon as they became aware of it, because this is a problem. But obviously, that's not their objective, right? They sit on this stuff, and and they just play the game. Yeah, and the game is exhausting. Yeah. All right, so we offend all our people that love politics, so we're good on the offense list. (laughs) I think people that love politics are used to being offended. Yeah, I think that's the nature of that love, that passion of their job is you just offend or be offended. That's just what you do. I think we're ready to add somebody else to this list. You know, we've maintained on the show that lawyers don't get to be offended. You guys just have to take it. Should we add politicians to that? Should we make it formal? We should. And I think that's why qualified people don't run for presidents because they know no matter how well they do, half the country will hate them. I've seen (laughs) a lot of articles recently about how... Many CEOs or politicians up in high levels, actually, they have to have, and I don't even know if this is a word, some sociopathic tendencies in order to, A, want to do this, and B, be able to put up with it. Because a normal person would just curl up in a ball and die. They'd say, (laughs) I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. 
But I don't know. What do you think about that? Does a politician or a CEO have to be a little bit psycho? I would think so. Psycho, you have to let all the insults just kind of roll off. Because a normal person, they have to say, uh, Mr. or Mrs. President, it's time to come out of the closet now. We've got a, got a meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Uh, there's a meeting now. You'll have to just get over it. Get your thumb out of your mouth. All right. You can go suck it in the closet after. <laughs> yeah, afterwards. We're, we'll, we'll send you back to the closet after the meeting, but for now, you have to pretend everything's okay. I've been on a bit of a tear with World War II documentaries. It's kind of my thing I like to do, partly because it's an awful football season. So <laughs> I, I've been watching these, and this one is spending a lot of time in the political lead-up to World War II with Hitler and uh, Mussolini in Italy. Mussolini is entertaining to watch. The body language of that guy I mean, if you need to get a good laugh, watch that guy. And I go, wow, this, this guy convinced a country to do stuff. He was ridiculous. Well, that's interesting because I have my public speaking students watch different historical speeches. And I get to let them choose. And a lot of them choose Hitler, and they're just fascinated. It's kind of eerie at the same time, but it's fascinating. Their public speaking skills, their gestures, their nonverbals, their tonality. You know, even though it's in German and a lot of them don't understand German, you can get a lot out of those presentations. So it is definitely interesting. It really is. And, and like you said, it's eerie because you can appreciate their tactics, right? They're good at what they're doing. And then you realize what they're doing <laughs> and it's mm -hmm. horrifying. And that's one of the documentaries that I watched it. Uh, listeners, if you're a, a history geek like me, it's on Netflix. It's called World War II in color. And they took all this footage and they were able to turn it into color. And it actually makes those speeches of Adolf Hitler even more creepy because there's just something about color, right? It's more real, and wow, it'll blow your mind. There we go. Learn some history here on the podcast. You'll learn one thing today. Let's just sign out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a great time. You know, we've got an election coming up, so talk about Hitler and Mussolini. I think that's kind of what everybody feels like. So let's talk. Even though we've already learned something, in theory, we should quit while we're ahead. That's never stopped us before. So, no, it's not. Yeah, here we go. We need Kurt to go ahead and cue up the Urkel. All right, Urkel, go. <laughs> All right, here's Urkel and new information about placebos. Let us have it, Urkel. Give us a little All Urkel right. snort if you're feeling up to it, but I won't hold you to it. <laughs> yeah, not going to do the snort today, but I will tell you about placebos because the human brain's amazing. We've talked about the law of expectations, presuppositions, placebos, and the science is amazing. And this one is, as you know, from the Journal of Pain. Yes, that exists, the Journal of Pain. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> no, this is for people that, I guess, have pain or like pain. I'm sure it's not like pain. That's a different magazine. This is for those <laughs> who don't like pain. We have to clarify that one. So, Yeah, this is the Journal of Pain, not the Journal of uh, Sadomasochism. Yeah, that's right. Yes. we got to clarify that. Okay. And placebos. And so they're talking about placebos work 40 50% of the time, depending on the study. They said... Placebos work even when you know they're placebos, which reminds me of an earlier study done on IBS pills, irritable bowel syndrome, that when it said placebo on the pill, it worked. But this was a joint venture with uh, Dr. Kapchuk from Harvard Medical School and uh, colleagues from the Instituto Superior de Psicologia Aplicada from Lisboa, Portugal. Hey, nice. <laughs> they did it together and put it together in the Journal of Pain. So what they did is they got patients who were already taking pills that had severe back pain, right? Hence, Journal of Pain. And they had these pills. They were told placebos. They told them it would help them. And they wanted to see if it actually worked. 
So the group taking the placebo pill saw a 29% drop in pain-related disability. So there was something about taking the pill, making it work, and the patients really liked this. But the interesting thing is we know that placebos work, is that the key factor here was having a warm and empathetic relationship with the healthcare provider was one of the big differences as far as how well it worked, if it did work or not. And that's an interesting thing is that really having that trust, being empathetic, telling people how it's going to work made a big difference. I think just taking a pill for it actually works. And that brings up another interesting thing that happened during the Korean War when the American soldiers, what happened is they run out of morphine for pain. And so they started with placebos. And what they found is when the nurse gave it, it worked really well. When the doctor gave it, it didn't work. I think there's two pieces there. First of all, the nurses are always more trusted. There's more empathy. There's more of a connection. And the doctors don't tend to be that way. And the other thing is, is the nurse didn't know it was a placebo and the doctor did. So there's something about the human brain and the expectations you can create in placebos and how well they work. It makes a big difference in what we're able to do. Mm. So bedside manner comes back to get us again, right, for, for doctors. If there's a good, warm relationship there even if the patient knows it's a placebo. That's how powerful the mind is. And I'll bring it up again is that the number one reason doctors are sued is people didn't like them, bad bedside manner, too analytical, too by the book, didn't have time to spend time with them. Now, even though it's good time management up front for the doctor, maybe they saved five, ten minutes, but when that lawsuit hits, now that's going to take hours of their time and probably lots of money. That's interesting because I have a client that's buying a couple of investment properties and they're, they're using my services for this right now. And the sellers, there are two investment properties in question here, a different seller on each one. And on property A, things have been going kind of rough. That can happen in real estate. There's missed deadlines and problems and stuff like that. But that seller has a very, very good bedside manner. And on property B, we've hit some some minor roadblocks, but nothing crazy. That seller has an awful bedside manner. And I've got the client talking about bailing out of transaction B, and it's going far better <laughs> than transaction A because people will, they will forgive mistakes. They'll forgive being human if you're nice, if you're cool about it, right? But if you're not, mm -hmm. oh man, they start looking for things, that's for sure. It's even coworkers. Once you don't like somebody, you're looking for everything that's wrong and why you hate them and why they blew it and why they're a failure versus if you like somebody, you're more forgiving. Yeah, that was probably a mistake. Well, remember the last time we did this and, well, I liked them for this and we went out to lunch. Just people are more forgiving and they don't tend to look for the things to rip you apart. That's right. Yeah, one easy tip and we could end the show here, but just at work or however things are going, wherever you see people, just make a point to smile. Smile at somebody when you pass them in the hallway. Ask them how they're doing. Put a little bit of personality in the bank. Put some bedside manner in the bank. and Because yeah, you're going to need it at some point, right? You can't be mm -hmm. stumbling around the office all gruff and grumpy, only focused on yourself. That ain't going to work. Does not work. Does not work. And actually, we have unintentionally made a good segue. Oh, love the segue. Yeah, usually intentionally we make an awkward segue. In fact, we need to come <laughs> up with a sound effect for that. You know, everybody on the podcast listening has this vision of you, Kurt, over a giant soundboard with thousands of, <laughs> of effects at your disposal. But it's really like three. Yeah, well, we're going to add to that. That's my commitment for this year and next year. More sound effects. And we've mentioned we occasionally do show prep, and we were doing some today. And Kurt was bragging 
Uh, he's apparently got a bunch more sound in the can, so stay tuned on Maximize Your Influence. It's about to get crazy around here. Yeah, for Halloween, we'll just have all sound effects. No content, no talking, just sound effects. Yeah, yeah, we plan on gradually descending to become cheesy late-night DJs with our sound go. effects. Yeah. <laughs> that leads us to our, our topic here, and we searched this on Google. If you need to kill a few minutes, you want to be entertained, just start typing a phrase or a question into Google, and Google tries to guess what you're typing, and you will be shocked at what society is asking Google about. It tries to guess. The reason it tries to guess is because a bunch of people have asked that question. So I'll be typing something in, and I'll be like, what? People want to know what Miley Cyrus's blood type is or something crazy? You know, <laughs> Google will tell you because people ask. But we started typing in how to talk to difficult, and of course I was wondering people, just how do we talk to difficult people in general? And sure enough, Google had, I think, seven or eight suggestions. Employees, parents, kids, bosses, coworkers, right? All kinds of things people are searching because, hey, guess what? Part of our day, a lot of days, is we got to go talk to somebody who is unpleasant. Not necessarily about something unpleasant. We just got to talk to somebody unpleasant, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've had news or, or things I've had to tell people that are just fine. They're normal, but that person is unpleasant. So no matter what I say, they're not going to be happy. So I think, Kurt, the first question I wanted to ask was, okay, well, what what is a difficult person? What does that even mean? Because maybe we're just hypersensitive, right? <laughs> what is a difficult person? A difficult person would be anyone you don't like, that annoys you, that rubs you the wrong way, that thinks they're funny but they're not, that says they're going to do it and they don't. They resist you at, at every turn. They say no even though they know they need to say yes. How's that for a definition <laughs> yeah. for difficult people? That's the type of person you work with. And then the big picture here, and I've said this before, is as I describe that person, every single one of you imagine somebody that you work with or a member of your family. But I want to reiterate, this could be you. This is you. You are a difficult person to other people. You don't mean it. And a lot of times it's just a different style, different type of personality. We tend to clash with people that are different than us, and we have to learn to get along with each other. That is a huge factor in your ability to influence them. It's almost like a difficult person has a deep subconscious need for confrontation, (laughs) right? And, And confrontation is necessary a lot of times. But they need it even if it's not necessary, right? They just got to have it. It's almost like they feed off of it. I mean, does that make sense? They do. And that's how some people are programmed. They're looking for what's wrong. They want to fight a little bit. They want to have an argument. Results are first. Relationships are second. That might be how they're programmed. I've worked with people before that you just got to give them something to fight about and argue about. And then just put that out of the way. Then continue on with your (laughs) presentation or negotiation. They need that. And then they thrive on that. And it's just how they're wired. Right. Okay. So I think one thing we need to remember then is what your expectations should be when you're going to have to talk to a difficult person. Seems like expectation number one should be you're not going to leave the conversation feeling warm and fuzzy no matter what, because that's their mission. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, even in a negotiation, that's what they're coming for. They're coming to win. That's their job. Relationships aren't important. And yeah, you're not going to have your warm and fuzzies. Don't expect it, especially if you're an amiable type personality. That's how they are. It's not a good time to cry because they hurt your feelings. That's not going to help the negotiation. But yeah, 
that would be a great point is sometimes that's just how people are and you're not going to walk away knowing about their life history or their life challenges or their hobbies that they like. They're just going to get into it and they could be difficult that way because that's how they're programmed or that's what they learned in negotiation school that you have to be mean and in people's face because that's how you get what you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do you think difficult people are being that way? What drives that? So I think big picture, you have to realize as you go into the situation, if it's a coworker, if you've met them before, even if you meet someone for the first time, you've got to go in there and say, okay, I'm getting some resistance. I'm dealing with a difficult person. So the first thing you need to ask yourself, okay, is this personality or is this low self-esteem? Then from there, once you realize that, you can kind of deviate what you're going to do and how you're going to adapt to them and how you're going to influence them. That's a really good statement. I hadn't thought about it. I kind of put those two together. So, of course, I'm going to ask you on the spot here. I mean, is there a way to tell whether it's a personality or a self-esteem issue? Well, if you're working with that person every day, I think you're going to know pretty quick what it's going to be. I mean, personality is the one that's, you know, that's how they are all the time. That's how they are working with everybody. That's how they react to all situations versus self-esteem might come and go at different times. I mean, self-esteem is how much you like yourself. And what people do is they try to cover up low self-esteem. They try to cover up that they don't feel comfortable in the situation. They try to cover up that they don't feel like they have the tools. That's the biggest difference between the two. And you can see through that. Personalities all the time, pretty much. I mean, you'll see differences. Self-esteem will probably come and go depending on the situation. They might feel comfortable talking to a certain person or a certain situation or giving a certain presentation, but all of a sudden you say something, they attack you, they make it your fault, they might not feel comfortable in that situation, then you know it's low self-esteem. Are there people out there that, and I guess so, we could probably tie these two together, that just are negative? They have a tendency to view everything negatively, everybody is suspect, uh, nothing is good, and, and that just translates into difficulty because at some point you got to just trust people to a degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When people are pessimistic and negative and they've been beat up and people have taken advantage of them and they've lost all trust in the world and humanity, that can affect them. And they're going to assume that just because they were wronged or a person did something or someone taken advantage of them, that's the whole world. And now they're just putting that blanket out. says, all right, everyone's distrustful. Everyone's mean. Everyone's going to take advantage of me. Those are the type of things that can really hurt the relationship and makes them a lot more difficult because now everybody's that way. They're never going to like or trust anybody ever again. Okay, so let's assume you're going into a meeting with a difficult person and you have been able to establish that they're difficult because that's just who they are. If anything, they have too high of a self-esteem, right? What are some pointers for dealing with somebody that's difficult out of personality? as opposed to self-esteem. Find somebody else. <laughs> that's a good start. If you can't do that, go. what's the next one? So you know that's how they're programmed. That's, that's who they are. They're going to be very negative, pessimistic. Nothing's going to work out. They're going to remember all the negative things and the mistakes in the, in the past and the future. You have to remember that this person is stuck in the past. They're stuck on worry. They're stuck on resentment in a lot of ways. What resentment is comes from the word sentir, which means to feel. So you're refeeling, rehashing all the times you were wronged and the people that wronged you, and that's kind of getting transferred on to you. So you've got to do a couple things. If you can talk about some past victories that you've had as a company, as a team, as a person, when you've worked together and it all worked out, talk about those victories. Bring them to the future. That's one thing. The other thing is is that worry comes from indecision. 
where you're just thinking, what should I do? What if this happens? And they just get in this downward spiral. Help them start making decisions. I'm sure everyone's jumped from a bridge before into the water or from a cliff into the water. The more you think about it, the more you, you worry about it, you think about all the negative things that could happen, it's harder and harder to make a decision. So if you can get them to start making some decisions, even minor ones, well, do you want to meet in the conference room or do you want to meet in your office? Do you want to do it at 10 o'clock or 10.15? you want paper or plastic or whatever it is? Get them to start making minor decisions, and a lot of that worry and fear will go away. And then you've got to move them from worry to the vision. Because when people are stuck on worry, it's because their vision's not strong enough. They can't see themselves doing it. They can't see the company do it. They can't see you as a team doing it. You've got to move them into that vision. You've got to create a vision where they can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it. The worry will start to erode. The pessimism will start to erode, and you can get them on track. And you'll probably have to do this every meeting because that's their default setting. Get them to start making decisions, get them past the worry, help them visualize the future. You start doing these things with a personality that's like that, then you can get them on track, build the trust, and realize that, no, you're the type of person that gets things done. No, remember the last three projects we worked on? Remember we've exceeded expectations by 10% and we worked through it, then all of a sudden you can get them in the right direction and the right mindset. That's a really good point because I think a persuader could get discouraged when you're dealing with these people that have that inherently difficult personality, it's Groundhog Day. You have the same conversation over and over and over again. And, hey, you know what? They wouldn't be a difficult person if they didn't make it difficult. So That's you're right. just going to have to accept to. that. Yeah, They have to. They're the difficult person. And you just have to realize going into that meeting, all right, we're starting at Groundhog Day. We're starting at Ground Zero. All right, let's get them back on track. Let's get them to shift tracks. Then and only then can you start the influence process because you have to get them in the right mindset, the right mood, the right direction, the right vision, then it works. I know it's frustrating. I know you shouldn't have to do it. I know it's a waste of time, but really isn't a waste of time. If you need to work with that person, get them on track, then you will be the only one that can get them on track. Then all of a sudden you're more valuable and you're more employable and your upward mobility goes up. Hey, we like upward yeah. mobility. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've noticed too on these people that if you have a, it's a proposition for, you know, they're going to buy XYZ widget from you. They tend to get feeling negative about something and then they loop everything into it. And you've got to break this out into, okay, this is, this product is comprised with sections A, B, C, and D. And you got to talk through A and they have to tell you, no, I'm good with A, right? Because if you don't separate it out, then they're just not good with anything. They get mired in negativity. And then you isolate it eventually down towards towards D. And this is where their problem is. And when they start getting funky on the other stuff, no, remember, we already talked about that. Here's the issue, right? You've got to separate it and pick your battles because otherwise you're just fighting this big negative blob of emotion. That's a great point. And a lot of it is managers or working with other people. The way we delegate, the way we as give assignments causes a lot of resistance, causes people to be difficult. And so we have to step back and realize that we're doing it the wrong way. We're causing resistance. We're causing them to become difficult because we asked them to do something and they didn't get it. It was too big. They didn't understand it. Because in your mind, it's like, well, here, do this. It's a no-brainer. It's easy. You do it all the time. But to them, it might be new. Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they don't know what's going on. And there's three E's, we'll call them, that you need to understand that when you're working with somebody or delegating with someone that you need to do. The first one is when you sit down with them, 
and they're the difficult person, you've got to empower them. You've got to compliment them and, and build up their self-esteem, why you want them to do it, why you chose them, why they're the perfect person, why based on history that you're going to them as the go-to person. There's no one else that can do it. That's why we're coming to you. You've got to empower them and paint that picture. That's the first easy, empower them. The second one is you've got to educate them. Even though it's a no-brainer to you, you've got to talk about, okay, this is what we need. You build the vision like we talked about. Here's some of the tools. Here's your contact. You can come to me. Here are your resources so they know exactly what to do, how it's spelled out. Again, no-brainer to you, but maybe not to them. Just spell it out. Educate them exactly what you want and where they can go and build that vision. So once you empower them and you educate them, now you've got to manage those expectations. All right, here's our time frame. Here are our goals. All right, this is how we're going to get measured. This is our next step. So by next Friday, when we meet again, here are the one thing, two things, or three things that I need to do. This is what we're looking at, managing those expectations and understanding when you can do that. Now, all of a sudden, they're less difficult. They're not overwhelmed because some people are difficult because they don't know what to do or they're overwhelmed or they don't know where to go or they feel like you're dumping on them. So understand, maybe you're causing the resistance. Maybe you're causing a little bit of that difficulty. You know, I know some people are always difficult, but maybe you're just magnifying that difficulty with the way you're asking them to do things or way you're managing them or the way you're influencing them. Right, right. I think we ought to do another show next week on dealing with people that have the bad self-esteem. I mean, today we've covered they're just a difficult person, but it seems to me like these are two completely different animals. They are. And that's why I said right at the beginning, you got to kind of veer off. Is this personality? It's just who they are. That's how they're programmed. Or are we dealing with esteem issues? And, you know, everybody suffers from low self-esteem in some aspect of life. And we can talk about that, how to deal with that, because people are difficult. You could be difficult. And sometimes just because they're different personalities or styles, they can be difficult. And people spend so much time trying to protect themselves and their self-esteem that they become difficult, that when you can see that, could really help you as you go out and influence people and get them to do what you want them to do and like doing it. Okay, so I think we're kind of hinting at we're going to do a show on low self-esteem because today has revolved mostly around just difficult people because that's who they are. Any last words on this one before we kick into the blunder? Well, let's talk about esteem next week and I'm working with those who have low self-esteem. But I just want to point out there, one of the 12 laws of persuasion and maximum influence is the law of connectivity. I mean, are you the likable person? Are you the person that can connect with anybody? Are your people skills up to speed? And I will say no. It's something that we can all work all the time. So part of it, too, is helping you develop that relationships, learning to connect with people. And you're probably saying, well, they shouldn't be difficult. They shouldn't act that way. Well, that's probably true, but you still have to work with them. You could hope that it goes away, but the reality is the world is full of difficult people. Every place that I've ever been, I've ever consulted with, I've ever worked at, difficult people. How do you deal with them? How do you work with them? That is a huge piece. And the more you can do that, then you become a leader and influence becomes much easier. Awesome. Awesome. Why don't we queue up the blunder? Ooh, Homer, go. Don't, don't, don't. Okay. Now, Kurt, probably once a quarter needs to vent about a specific rental car company <laughs> and that time has come. It has. And <laughs> the company is Alamo. I think they're the low cost and rental car. They don't have a preferred program. And I travel a lot, as you do. And this one company only goes to Alamo. And so what a preferred program does, it just bypasses the line. You get to pick a car. But this one, you have to stand in line because a third party has rented the car. I can't use their kiosk. And I was just mentally, all right, I'm going to have to wait an hour. That's just how it is. I flew into Boston, of course, long line. 
They don't care. And the person says, well, use the kiosk. I'm like, it won't work. Oh, sir, it'll work. I'm like, no, it won't work. And so we kind of had a little battle right up front because I've tried it three times because you get out of line, try the kiosk. It doesn't work. And you have to get back in line with three or four more people already in the line. And it's kind of frustrating because <laughs> you can't really cut. They haven't seen you. And of course, that person that promised. So I'm waiting in line, learning my patience. And as you know, Steve, I'm a very patient person in line. You love lines. I love lines. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't love a good line? But anyway, and so I'm getting more tense, actually, because it was getting close to rush hour. And the longer they wait, the longer my commute is to Billerick. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to Billerick. I oh, traffic this and that. And so I'm just waiting. And I, I think they can tell I'm getting a little tense because – they have people taking breaks when there's a long line. And they have this one girl. She could be looking at the reservations, but she was their people person. I don't even know what her role is, but she was go around to just talk to people and try to make them happy. Oh, gosh. Make me happy <laughs> yeah. by getting the reservation done. Let's yeah. get out of here. And so she comes up to me and she's, oh, how are you doing? Being all bubbly. And you have to remember we talked about it's good to have people skills, but when someone's in a bad mood, when they're tired of waiting and you're all bubbly, that has the opposite approach, mm -hmm. right? It says, yeah. I'm learning patience. <laughs> She's all, oh. And she, <laughs> and she kept trying to do this and talk about this and be all bubbly, and it was just making it worse. It was making me more mad because it was obvious she didn't care about me. It was obvious she had just been trained to do this. And I was just thinking, why isn't she in line? Why isn't she behind the counter taking my reservations? Oh, we'll take care of you. It'll be another 15 minutes. And she just was trying to be all bubbly, and it just had the opposite approach. And usually I'm in a pretty good mood, but her antics made me more upset. Now, I wasn't just the only one because I was watching other people, and they were getting tired of waiting, and she was trying to be this. It's like, no, take care of me. So once again, I'm throwing Alan under the bus that has no customer service, didn't give a rip about me, and I think it was at least an hour and five minutes in line to get a car, and that oh. is the blunt. You're making my blood pressure go up just hearing <laughs> the story. It's almost like they're robots, and they're told, hey, people need to be talked to and be made to feel good, so go, go talk to them. The motive was checking a box with the HR department. It wasn't actually helping the customer. And if she had any people skills at all, she could at least come in and say, yeah, I'd be tense too. I'd be angry too. This is a long wait. If I was qualified, I'd help you out right now. But let me see what I can do. Let me give you $50 cash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or at least give me a haagen bar or something. I mean, just something. Your bubbly personality, great in a lot of situations. But if you try to be bubbly in the wrong situation, it backfires. So you'll get it. Yeah, it is wrong. We apologize. You know, three people called in sick or this happened and we're working on this or yeah. something. And then just kind of mirror their mood before you try to bring it up. That one little technique would go a long way in their training. I had this happen the other day, I'm sure you have, where you're standing in line. Obviously, you had this happen, but you can tell they're understaffed and they're incompetent, right? <laughs> There's not nearly enough going. And then the cavalry arrives. Somebody like the manager gets there or the reinforcements they called in, and you see this person take charge behind the counter. They say, who's next in line? Okay, and they start assigning things, and all of a sudden, everything gets better. And how quickly your opinion changes because you're like, that person's a rock star. Mm -hmm. They came in here and they took the bull by the horns and they made stuff happen. Whereas they come out of the back, how are you? <laughs> Go get behind a kiosk lady and start checking <laughs> some cars out. That's how I am. And that's a good point for any manager that you can get on and say, we need more checkers. We need more of this versus getting behind there, making it happen. 
taking the bull by the horns, like you said, makes a big difference. So you can just say, well, that's not my job. I don't do that. But people are waiting. It is your job. You need to make them happy. Yep. Yep. Or they just start complaining about you on a podcast. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think they probably have the most blunders on our podcast. Well, I don't know. We have Delta. We have politicians. We'd have to do like a top blunder list here. Yeah. Hey, you know, Delta's getting better. I think they're getting better. I had a pretty nasty delay the other day, and they automatically wheeled out a cart with all kinds of goodies and and were saying, you know, giving lots of updates. I think they're doing a little bit a little bit better. Well, they they have blown it is that video presentation that we've used as a ninja. I watched it this last time. I was interested. How has it changed? How is it funny? Where am I going to laugh? Nothing. Just normal. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. What's going yeah, on? It's a bunch of people with really thick accents that you're like, I don't know what you're telling me about a seatbelt. <laughs> yeah, right you went from funny to politically correct? Come on. I want funny. <laughs> yeah. The funny one was much better. Much I better. know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to watch this anymore. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. I'm tuned right back out. I'm done. Yeah. Forget yeah. it. Yeah. Like, I wonder where the Starbucks is in the New Orleans airport. I'll read the magazine. There you Meanwhile, go. safety presentation. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, we appreciate you listening to the show today. This has been another episode of Maximize Your Influence. We will catch you next week on another show. Take care. Persuade with power.